So it's official. Our book is printed. Yes. And it's really pretty. I'm looking at it right now. We <laughs> staring at it. It turned out really nice. And people are saying nice things about it. Yay. It's available August 18th in any bookstore you want to go to, right? Yeah. Or you can pre-order now too as well. Yeah. So if you go to loveorworkbook.com, you can learn all about it. We have all this research in it. We have four questions at the end of every chapter for you to go through with your partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some challenges. Yes. Which turned out kind of fun. They are fun. Yeah. All kinds of good stuff. There's stories from our podcast that, of interviewing people. And there's a lot of stories about us. Oh, boy. Yep. Some that... Pretty vulnerable. How many of them are we going to regret in maybe like three years? <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of them. But we are trying to build a launch team. We need your help. So if if you want to be a part of the launch team, go to loveorworkbook.com. We're asking people to buy two copies, one for you, one for your partner. And if you do that, there are five free things that you can download online just by telling us that you're, you're joining in the work. Uh, number one is a little date night that we call home together. A bunch of ideas for stay-at-home dates. Number two, you get to download one chapter of the audiobook. Oh, yes. Which is you and I talking. Yep. Yep. Number three, a special bonus chapter called World Changing Children. Yes. It's a good chapter. We wrote more than what the publisher would let us put in the book. I know. We were just in a flow. Number four, you can get all the questions in a very simple designed PDF. So you can take them with you in your phone, wherever you need to go. And lastly, we made all of our research available to you. More than 60 pages of mm-hmm. research. It's designed. It's really pretty. It's kind of cool. If you're into data. Yeah, this is for you. All the numbers. So here's the deal. Please help us. For three years, we've been bringing you this podcast We've been encouraging you, hopefully, with this content. And now we need your help. We need a launch team to join us, to buy a book, to share about it, whatever social media, to share about it with your friends, whatever. The only way this is going to get to the most people is if the people that listen to us share it with people they know. Yes, that's you, people. We love you. Thank you for listening and being with us all along the way. And one little nugget. Back in January, we went through all of this content with, there's like, what, 12 people? Oh, yeah. We had uh, a book kind of... It was very intimidating. Yeah. They were our pre-readers or our beta readers. And it was 12 people who read the whole book and gave us all the feedback. They gave us lots of feedback. We made it better. But also, we asked them, what is something that really stuck with them? What did they learn through going through that process? So we want to take a second for you to hear from one of them right now. My name is April Stammel, and I've been married for almost three years. Um, While reading Lover Work, uh, one thing that really stuck out to me and my husband, just from a really high level, is how important and essential it is for us to prioritize learning together. Lover Work gave us the opportunity um, to read to answer questions, to engage in conversation, just the two of us, and to listen to perspective of other couples. It forced us to make those things a priority. Um, And we've had a really busy marriage so far. We became a blended family. We renovated our home, which meant moving twice. Uh, We both changed jobs, and we've added another girl to our family. It has been a whirlwind and certainly amazing. But reading Lover Work Together just reminded us how important intentional conversation is for our marriage. Uh, In the actual reading, I'll say that having both perspectives of Jeff and Andre constantly throughout the book, interwoven in every chapter, was just really incredible. And uh, the fact that they were so vulnerable with their audience um, is pretty rare. It's not often or for us really ever 
that we have conversations that open with couples we know and we hear both sides of the story. Um, so it helped Rodney and I be able to speak to our perspectives and our differences a little bit better because we both heard the same thing from the same couples. I'll say one of the most helpful conversations that came out of the book, um, really about us needing more resources like this to continue feeding our marriage. From a personal level, the conversation uh, that we had about our girls uh, was really one of the most emotional. It was in relation to Andre's story about Jada and her perception of herself. Um, having two older girls, it helped us hear from another girl mom, her reaction and response and challenge in the midst of building you know, a young girl's confidence. And it really gave us a chance to talk about ways that we can address that in our home with our girls in a really intentional way. Um, we still talk about that to this day. Overall, I'll just reinforce, we, we love the opportunity to read this book and we love being able to share it with other couples. And um, I just, I, I truly hope couples out there give themselves time and the opportunity to really dive in um, and listen to the podcast and answer the questions and have that conversation with their partner. Um, I know I'm looking forward to doing it again uh, once the book actually comes out. Yep. <laughs> you got to bring up our fight. I mean, I'm usually right, but that's good. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Never, no way. Let's go back. Don't share that story. Hang on. Did I go too fast? You just jumped to purpose, which is you. You're what a visionary. I see your I'm connection a- here. <laughs> Love or work. Welcome to the Love of Work Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeff. <laughs> and your other co-host? It's kind of a... Andre? Yeah, it's kind of a partnership in podcast. So I, I'm your... The other co-host, Andre. Yeah, no, you just it's just a co-host. Oh. There's not a other. When you say co, it, it implies dual. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what you're <laughs> trying to play at here. So I could just be the host. This is Andre Schinnebarger. Let's be honest. If you were the host, there'd be way more listeners. <laughs> I don't think so. I do. We need both of us together today to make got, it work, baby. L- listen, today we got a special one. A couple. I mean, I don't know if I was like, I, I felt like you two were in a conversation and then I kind of just was kind of the third wheel. Oh, well, Hillary is my dearest friend for sure. I mean, if she lived closer, I feel like we'd be BFFs, but oh, she's in Canada. First, yeah, is this our first Canadian on the podcast? Yes, actually, I think it <laughs> is. Maybe there have been other Canadians, but they've been secret. Yeah, maybe it. next we can have Justin Bieber. <laughs> We're just going to start aiming high. You just threw in what the only other Canadian you know. <laughs> True. Oh, Canada. So this is different because Hillary is a therapist, a researcher. She's written books. She's uh, about to release another book. Uh, She's published research. I mean, this is a very different type of podcast today. Mm -hmm. And it's just with Hillary because we just really wanted to get some expert kind of thoughts and see if it would touch people in different ways than before. She's so good. I, I uh, was looking up some things about her on the internet as one does when they're about to interview somebody. And <laughs> one thing that I read about her that she loves, she said is, I love building safety and hope. Mm. 
I thought, what a what a beautiful thing to say, not just as a therapist, but as a human. Yeah, uh, for really a friendship, nice. and 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 I think that is true. From the first time we met her, I felt that from her. Oh, a hundred percent. As soon as you said those words, I'm like, yes, that is what she makes you feel very safe. Well, uh, you can look up some of her stuff. She wrote a book that I have read called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Just really learning to love who you are and then be able to pass that down to the next generation. Um, She also has a podcast called Other People's Problems. And she kind of brings you into her therapy world. And so that's a really interesting podcast if you want to check that out too. Uh, And her new book coming out, which is not out yet, but you will be able to pre-order is called This Is My Body. Very exciting. Yeah. So I think she gets into, when when you hear this podcast today, you should be listening for some things, but I think she also kind of gets into a little bit about like what this book will be about for sure. Yeah. So what what, are we listening for? Oh, you're just, you're prepping me. Yeah. What are we listening for? You're peppering. You're, you're, you're just leading me. Yes. Not bad as a (laughs) co-host. Pretty good at that. I think that's supposed to be my job. Number one. Ask first date questions continuously. Mm, I like that. Number two, we're going to talk about body image. And number three, we're going to talk about postpartum sex. And health. Mm-hmm. And sex. Yes, all of that. So here we go. This is Hillary McBride. So Hillary, tell us how you... Fell in love with your oh, man. Which, uh, this is a little, I feel like this is one-sided already. It is. <laughs> it is. But as Hillary said, it's the best side. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, feel, I feel, honestly, she hasn't even answered yet. Listens, he's going to be like, wait a minute. She hasn't even answered her question yet, and I feel like it's two against one right now. Oh, yeah. oh really? <laughs> Just get used well, to it, I should. I should qualify when I say the best side. I can't think of anyone luckier than me to be loved mm. by my husband. Oh. I truly, this is what I mean by the best side is like, I, I won the lottery oh. when it comes to, to this man. So, and he somehow <laughs> tolerates my messiness, my chronic, like lateness, <laughs> things are spread out all over the house. I have I have a detention attention regulation disorder. So I have to have everything out in front of me to remember that it's happening. So I'm like, you can't, you can't move my clothes for Saturday because I need to know that that's what I'm wearing and they're out. And I'm going to forget that I own those if I don't see them. And he's like, but it's Wednesday. So <laughs> this is, this is what I mean by the best side. <laughs> we, we fell in love uh, over time, I know that's not, that happens almost immediately for some people, but for us, we actually met when I was 15 and he was 17 and we were mm-hmm. at summer camp, Christian summer camp. Okay. So there's that, which I always <laughs> mm-hmm. like to tell, I, I was like a camp counselor for a little while after that. And I would always tell my, my campers like this, this isn't necessarily going to happen to you. Cause I think everyone goes to summer camp being like, well, I meet the men I marry. <laughs> <laughs> And I did. <laughs> you did. But I want to say, people, slow down. Enjoy the ropes course. Don't worry about <laughs> your marriage for now. <laughs> so we met 
when I was 15, he was 17. And he describes it as like knowing with almost immediate clarity that, that we would be together in perpetuity. And I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so he waited patiently for a few years for me to come around to it. We kind of found our way to each other. We, we didn't start dating for a few years, but kept up a relationship and friendship. And he traveled the world and wrote me letters the entire time as like an, a 19 year old, which I think is so sweet. Uh, and, and we got married when I was 22 was and he was nice 24. And young. Yeah. I really looking back on that, I'm thinking, your frontal lobe is not fully formed. That's what we talk about like, all the time. You- we're like, <laughs> we didn't even have fully developed brains and we were making like, such a big life decision. Yeah. So Kevin, his name's Kevin. We talk about that regularly. Like how, how are we still together? Because mm-hmm. I think, I think that there's an awareness that a person would change. We've just been married 10 years right now. Yeah. Right, what does that mean right now? Right now. last week was our 10 year anniversary. Um, but he, he and I talk about, it's so, it's so special and unusual Mm. that with all of the transformation we've had individually over the last few years that we have continued to find our way back to each other or find our way into, into a shared narrative when it's so easy with what happens in your twenties and thirties to, Mm. to become different people. Like that, that kind of should happen in a way from 20 right. to 30. Yeah. And so we marvel at that and we wonder like, are we lucky? Was this like the divine hands? Did we work hard at it? Probably all three. Mm-hmm. Um, but about six years ago, we almost renegotiated the terms of our marriage and decided that marriage one was over mm-hmm. and marriage two was going to begin. And it came because I think we were realizing we were living out patterns for a marriage that we hadn't really chosen for ourselves. They were just kind of like these, the fulfillment of the, what we had observed, our internal attachment systems were just kind of making these unconscious choices. And I wasn't communicating what I wanted and he wasn't able to communicate what he, what was going on for him. And we were kind of like living these really loving parallel lives where we were frustrated with each other, I think, or maybe I was more frustrated, but I didn't know how to say it. And, mm-hmm. and we started from that point, really building a new foundation. And I, I don't know if it has to happen that way, but it certainly felt like it had to happen that way for us. And I wouldn't trade what we have for the world. It feels like the most precious thing in my entire life, this marriage that we built. So how did that come yeah. out? How do you have yeah. that? Like all of the, yeah. Like what happened that you guys came to that next phase again? Cause like now it's like, we're done. We divorced. Right. That's like, more common. I think yeah. when you get to that place, you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, he, again, when I say like my side is the best side <laughs> of our marriage, <laughs> He's loved me since he met me and he, he wasn't going anywhere. Hmm. And I had to figure out, I was the one who had to say like, do I choose you or do I walk away? And he at some point had that question too for himself. And I'm making it all sound like very dramatic and it it wasn't necessarily, I wasn't satisfied. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't think I had articulated that. And mm -hmm. so I think what had happened was he, I, I was carrying all of this unmet expectation, mm -hmm. but I hadn't communicated it to, to him in a way that he could move through it or get his like change his behavior or communicate differently. Mm -hmm. And so the resentment kept building and the, the space between us kept building. And at that point it was like, well, something has to, something has to change, but we both knew that we loved each other and it wasn't that we didn't love each other. Mm -hmm. And I think coming from families with parents who are still together, um, yeah. observing people who had gone through conflict as most couples do and sustained the attachment piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then I think also the skills training for me of being a therapist, I have this disposition to say, this isn't working, but I'm not going anywhere. Mm. This we're, we're not meeting each other. I can't, we can't quite connect, but let's figure it out. I can't, mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not dropping you. That's so funny because I think if you, Andre, if you were a therapist mm -hmm. and you put your therapy, like, Language. Language on me. I'd be like, oh, I am not. No, I am not your patient right now. Or I Oh, yeah, that's happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be tough. But I get it. I, and I like what you said earlier about um, like as you came to grips with who you are and what you want and what um, both of you like in mm -hmm. the last 10 years, you're you're different people. Like, yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Wildly different. And yeah, I think that's a continuous for couples. Ha you have to continuously be curious about the new person that your partner oh, yeah. is becoming, right? I love asking him the same questions people would ask on a first date. Like I regularly will get curious about like, I don't know, what are the things like, what's your favorite restaurant? Or like if you, what's your favorite date? Or, you know, the things that, what would you love to do on an afternoon if you had free time? Or like, what's, what feels like something important that's happening in your life. Or when you look back on the last few years, um, what has made you who you are? And we forget to ask each other these questions as we grow into the habitual patterns of like normal life. And we forget to be excited and curious. And for me, a big shift has been in, and I think this came through how, what Kevin and I did to work on our marriage and then has moved out into the way that I see the world. But I like to think of people as constantly evolving. And when I make assumptions about people is when I'm probably in the wrong. And instead to approach a person with curiosity to assume there's probably more going on here than I, than I know. And so even if it looks like something is the same on the surface, I, I don't know unless I explore what's going on on the inside of that other person. And there could yeah. be a whole landscape of adventure that's accessible there. Right. Yeah. Well, we do. You are an expert in, in research. And so today I don't listen. I, it's encouraging to hear your personal story, but I do want to get into some of your research today. Let's like, do it. Um, so Let's tell us it. a little bit about what you've been researching most recently. And what's, yeah, what's most of your work consist of today? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so my program of research, when I look at the arc that it takes across my academic training it has focused mostly on how we relate to and experience our bodies, in particular, looking at different developmental transitions for women. So what's happening, puberty, um, postpartum, what's happening midlife and through menopause, and then increasingly so, how do men situate themselves in their bodies? What's, what's happening with the gender scripting for us as humans and how we can be attuned to ourselves and in compassionate, loving connection with our bodily selves or not? And then 
I have this also like totally weird other tract or like branch of my research, which is focused a lot on perinatal mental health. And within that, I did I did a placement for a while. I had my practice at a um, multidisciplinary clinic that worked supporting women perinatally. And then uh, there was a family practice that was adjacent to it as well. So there was primary care. And within that, there was so many hallway conversations with physicians where we were like, what? Did your, did your person talk about that too? Like, or I just heard someone talking about such and such. And like, they think that they're the only one. Are you, are you having other people talk about that? Mm-hmm. And what kept coming up over and over again in those conversations was what's happening sexually for couples postpartum. Mm-hmm. Like people feeling like they're not having sex, but they're supposed to, they really want to, but it's really painful. They uh, aren't communicating or the expectation is like, my body is a woman's totally touched out. You are desperate to get the same quality of attention that I'm giving our kids like the, mm-hmm. all of the complexity and the dance of what it's like to move from a family of two to a family of three, where the priorities are shifting and what we do with our bodies is shifting. So that, that hallway conversation turned into a program that I developed with some colleagues and that we ended up researching and winning some really cool awards for, which I only mentioned because we were winning awards in from organizations and journals and academic mm-hmm. bodies that typically provide funding to um, other other problem issues, other areas of identity, other areas of um, tension in people's lives. And I thought it was really political and important that what's happening for, particularly for women postpartum, mm. who are often forgot about in that dynamic, it's like what's happening with the baby, right. yeah. uh, that women's sexuality, their satisfaction, their pleasure, and how that's moving itself out or not in their relationships was the focus of this, this award. So- that's awesome. That feels important. Yeah. And so uh, have done some done some more research, run some more of these groups. And essentially what it was was an intervention, which is that sounds like a big word for people who aren't clinically in the clinical world, but it's just our yeah. way of saying clinically. That you, sounds a little scary. I know both of you know this. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> no, this is not some sort of like a drug intervention with people who wrote wrote yeah. letters. Yeah. And, you're not having sex with me. Oh, I need that, to have this whole family meeting. Yeah, we I need know, to like have a, a family a meeting. Se- yeah, a sex intervention. I, that's <laughs> kind of, a, that's different. I don't, yeah. <laughs> that's my clinical language slipping out, but it yeah. it's just our way of saying clinically, like we are doing something. We are intervening yeah. in some way instead of letting things unfold as they would. So the testing this clinical intervention, which looked at women meeting in a group for three sessions and having a mix of psychoeducation and biomedical education about what's going on postpartum, what's happening with your body, why are things, why are, why are you struggling with vaginal lubrication when you never did before? Why do you, like, how do we respond to vaginal pain? And then the fourth session was a session just with partners and a therapist. Mm, that's good. So three group sessions just with women who are postpartum. So what we're doing is we're undoing the social isolation and the sense of like, I'm the only one. So I have to shame about this. Me too, adding that in. Oh yeah. yeah. And then the fourth one is a couple session uh, with a therapist and looked at the efficacy of that. We're going to be starting a randomized control trial soon. So the hope is that we'll get into some more data testing phases to look at what happens for this intervention group versus 
what we call treatment as usual. So nobody, right. nobody intervening, maybe yeah. yeah, someone seeing their physician and being like, I have pain when I have sex. And They're then like, what oh, typically happens cool. is that's normal. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. Or like, okay, you're six weeks postpartum, so you're allowed to have sex now. So go. I was. That's what I wanted to bring mm-hmm. up with you because oh, yeah. I, it's like the, the men hang on to that six week number like it's their lifeline, right? And right. then the women, as soon as that are like looking at that six weeks with dread because nothing feels normal yet at that right. six week mark. <laughs> Is that you know, true? Well, it's it's really interesting to look at how method of delivery yeah. also impacts things. So did you have a forcep delivery? Did you have vaginal tearing? Did yeah. you have um, a really almost like, I don't want to say effortless, but like the, the ideal vaginal birth right. where there was no tearing and you you walked out of the hospital or you had a home birth and you you walked, you know? Yeah. Out of your house, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. within a few hours. So I know, I know some people who I'm seeing in my practice right now who had intercourse a week later. Oh, mama! Oh my! Yeah, and they were like, "This is great for us. This is this was enough time. This works." And there are other people who I know who post post children haven't resumed what would be for them typical intercourse for two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say that like, like anything with the bell curve, most people are probably somewhere in the middle. And we see that about 90% of people have resumed intercourse, at least for an initial attempt within nine months. So the, the somewhere between six weeks and nine months, people are finding their way mm-hmm. in, in terms of like, how do we want to rediscover each other's bodies? And how do we want to do this at a pace that feels safe and consenting and supportive and actually enjoyable and not just like, okay, I had to do the laundry and then we had to have sex because (laughs) I needed to get you off my back sort of thing. (laughs) And I think maybe just to poke at like there are gendered assumptions too. I think that there is, there is this expectation or the narrative that we create that men are constantly wanting to have sex and that they need to have sex and that they're, that that's inherently part of them in some way. And I think that there is a, there are some things. It's a spectrum. Yeah, it's a spectrum for sure. And I think what often happens for men then as they age, like one of the, I'll pause that thought, one of uh, Barry McCarthy, he's a sex researcher. One of his really important findings that his findings that I've really, I found myself telling people all the time is that men in mid to late life are usually the ones who discontinue a sexual relationship with their partner because of the shame associated with difficulty sustaining or getting an erection. And so for men to feel this pressure of like, I'm supposed to want this and it's supposed to happen, that story ends up hurting and later in life when their bodies change too. So I always like to remind men, it's okay if Mm -hmm. your desire around frequency or uh, quality or what even is satisfying sexually changes over the course of your life. Like that's, yeah. that's allowed to happen and you're allowed to be in the postpartum period too. And the research that we're seeing kind of the nascent of this is that there is a, a kind of depression that many men can go through in postpartum too. The politics or whether we call it also postpartum depression for men or not, if it's showing up in the that's postpartum so- period, but it is really interesting to look at how some men are having these 
like total reorientations in their life, change in their meaning system, change in their self system, but also maybe even a sense of loneliness, meaninglessness, hopelessness, mm-hmm. um, fatigue, like overwhelming fatigue, going to the baby, all that. Yeah. yeah. It's a big change. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. big, big change. So yes, back to the, back to the six week mark. That's a contentious subject. Mm-hmm. And, and th- I would say in many cases, I wish they just wouldn't even start- say that. Yeah. Well, I think like when we look at the literature, what it says is that doctors want to give people a chance to say, or midwives, well, what one, that's when typical care ends, right. particularly in Canada for postpartum care, it ends at six weeks. And so okay. it's kind of this way of saying, okay, we no longer consider you to be medically recovering in general, although there right. are individual variability. Yeah. And so we're just going to say that this is an okay thing and our care is ending. And it seems like this great point to just kind of like tie up all the loose ends. And maybe that that's why, like, that's why it's six weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's so interesting. So if there's somebody listening, Mm -hmm. um, there's two sides of the spectrum. There's obviously the, the, the person that had the child and then there's the partner, right? Yeah. And yeah. so if there's a partner in the relationship, cause I haven't had a child obviously in that way. And I think that one of the things that, that we tend to struggle with in that moment is how to show empathy mm. and also how to communicate whether, it, whether it's the desires or our own emotions in the midst of not having gone through all that fully. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if somebody's listening right now and they're trying to understand, how would you guide their thinking or um, encourage them in that season? Mm-hmm. I'll touch in on what I had mentioned about my own marriage too, and not making the assumption that we know what's going on for the other person and trying to take the position of, of curiosity of wonder. So maybe even the first place to go is, can you tell me what this has been like for you? Or can you tell me what's hard for you right now? Or can you tell me what's exciting for you? So using a question to stimulate a conversation that might allow a person to, like I'm thinking about the postpartum mom or the pregnant mom or the mom of kids to say, ah, here's what's happening for me. And practicing the listening that comes with that to really hear what is the person trying to tell me. And I think that when we are deeply hearing someone and when we are really trying to connect with what they're saying, that we're actually wired to have an empathic response. Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking about like, how do I perform caring? If we allow ourselves to encounter someone else's pain, ideally what happens if we're connected to ourselves reasonably would be, we'd, we'd say like, I had no idea that was so hard for you. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for telling me. And we respond with a kind of caring, empathic attunement. Mm-hmm. So there's that angle of things. But the other angle of things is what is what is the foundation of the marriage and the conversation in the relationship in the first place? Is this a couple who previous to this point knows how to have conversations where there is this kind of like taking turns and listening to each other. Because if that's not been the case, if all of a sudden you have this like sleeplessness and it's like chaotic in the house and the baby's got colic and like it's been six weeks and you're still leaking vaginal fluid and you're wearing the mesh panties and like all of the things that go along with that. Like if you don't have that foundation of empathy, if someone comes in and is like, I need to tell you as a dad, 
this is awful for me. It's probably <laughs> going to be really hard to like hear each other. Right? Oh. So like, do you have practice? And maybe, maybe it's hard to get to those really big, important, emotionally evocative conversations if you don't know how to listen to each other and pay attention with the little things. Yeah, so when someone's like, oh, I didn't sleep well last night saying, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. I know that's so hard when you don't sleep well. And when we have a culture in a marriage of hearing the other person saying, sharing their little grievances and going, yeah, thanks for telling me. Oh yeah, that is frustrating. You couldn't find a parking spot outside of the doctor today and you had to drive around the block and you were like in tears by the time you got there. I bet that was so hard. <laughs> I bet that was so hard, right? That's so and the then, perfect example for the record. <laughs> but usually I'm like not in tears. I'm like cussing and calling you. Right, right. Uh, like, oh, but I know how important it is to you to be on time and you were late. And that must yeah. have just been so frustrating. You're trying so hard and I see that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So there's like those little things. I'm and sorry can, you couldn't find your mask. It was in the car where you left it before. It's okay. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Almost. No, just Almost. Kidding. Not quite there, Jeff. Wait, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on my own. You get three quarter marks on that. Yes. Yeah, then, then being able to say things like, I'd love to tell you about something that's been hard for me is now an, an okay time for us to talk about that. Because I, I want to tell you in a space and in a time when, when we both have the room to listen to each other instead of like, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Or like, what are you? I just, that was horrible. I almost went into a bro voice. Uh, I should say, let me back that up. It was kind of a Jersey bro voice too. It, it was, was like, <laughs> it's amazing. What's, what's in me when yeah. I start, <laughs> when I just free associating, well, what comes out apparently a Jersey bro, but the, don't let the credentials fool you. The, <laughs> I think the the maybe the frustration of like why don't we have sex or like oh, I'm boiling over because I just want to touch you and I just can and you're not interested like that that tends to not be a, a relational approach that draws someone close but what does is I appreciate you and what do you need from me and is this a moment when we can share together because I want to tell you what's happening in me because I want you to know and I really want to know what's happening in you and the mutuality of the the co-discovery of each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I think we're going to shift a little bit okay. because I've, I read your book, Mother, Daughters and Body Image. Um, and uh, I think what's the tech? Learning to love ourselves oh as my. we are. That title though, can we Ooh. just take a moment for it? Ooh. I didn't choose it. I want to be on the record. <laughs> that was not my first choice. Well, it, I'm so irritated with how long it is. Oh, but I'm not even apologizing. But it says everything, sure. everything in it. I mean, but that's it's right that's there. The thing. It's everything. <laughs> There's no it's like magical much. question. Like, Did you read that book? <laughs> <laughs> was the title like nobody? No. So <laughs> you just um, you get an award for reading that out. Thank you. I know. I love it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of us uh, mothers that. Um, maybe had one narrative or have seen kind of experience through our own parents or through our own, you know, lens, kind of how we've seen our, our parents. And, uh, and we don't necessarily want to pass down the same narrative to our kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and whether that's with, um, body image, diet culture, um, those types of things. And, 
And I know that there's like a, there's a big kind of push right now of body positivity, body neutrality. Um, but then there's this whole like wellness industry too, you know, with it that you're like, is it wellness industry or are you just still trying to make everybody skinny? Um, I don't know. So how, how, what do you think kind of with how it's a big thing now, mm-hmm. how do you see that, um, being able as a mother pass this down to a daughter of her identity, her, you know, her being, her personhood mm-hmm. in a way that's a healthy way um, without going into, you know, these kind of struggle points. Yeah. Million dollar question, right? Like, and yes. I think the, the thing that I've heard so many moms say like right out of the gates. I don't, I don't want to be like my mom. I want to, I don't want to hurt my kids the same way that I was hurt. I want to give them better. There's all of like that language about us, right. When we're thinking about the role, framing it in terms of like, there has to be this like repairing, there has to be this, Mm -hmm. um, doing better. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. There's some, there's a growth and what we might call like a transformance, a striving in us to say like, this is, this is what I can give to my kids better than I had. And this kind of loving action. But I also, I want to pull back and, and make a framing statement to say, I don't think the weight of our world, weight of the world needs to be on any individual parent's shoulders. Mm. And that we forget, particularly in our like settler colonial landscape, we forget about the ancestral history and how we sit on this long line of people. Mm-hmm. And we just have to do our part right now mm-hmm. to see if we can shift any of the little things that we can shift. But the idea that we have to do this perfectly and that there's lots of pressure on that, I think is a really inhibitory or kind of like perfectionistic mentality that we probably don't want to pass on Either. itself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so when we think about like how we're parenting. There's, again, I'm speaking about this as like, I like to think about myself with parenting as like a male gynecologist. Like I know lots about it, but not from personal experience. (laughs) Like like I can tell you from the outside, but but this is like, who knows? In a few years, if I'm a parent, we we do this interview and I'll be like, I am so sorry. I had no idea what I was talking about. I know now. (laughs) But, But I think that there is this pressure to do it perfectly in the how. Mm-hmm. And the why have to line up too. Yeah. And when the how and the why are in tension with each other, I think that that comes out too. So even if mm-hmm. we're saying like, I want my kids to be more compassionate with themselves than I am, but I'm going to beat the crap out of myself every mm-hmm. time I'm not showing them compassion. Right. Like there's something like it's not quite right. It's not quite in alignment. And so really a big part of passing things on or not passing things on is like, what are the, what's the work that I am doing? to be conscious of the way that I show up in the world and not to center yourself in the parenting exclusively, but to say like how, and if I don't want my kids to struggle with their body image, I probably need to go to therapy if that's an issue for me. Yeah. And if I don't want my kids to be perfectionistic the way that I am, what are the steps that I am taking mm-hmm. to equip myself and scaffold a new self story? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that piece of it. Like, what am I doing and how am I tending to myself? Because mm-hmm. I imagine, and this is like from my faith tradition growing up, I remember learning 
like no bad tree bears good fruit, no good tree bears bad fruit. And so what is the tree and what are the root systems and what am I watering and what is planted here? And is that what I'm offering them? So part of parenting well is is self-responsibility. And then like when we think about parenting in particular around body image, I can't speak necessarily about everything, but I know the literature really well around that. And we know that messages about bodies are communicated two ways, uh, through modeling and, uh, and through direct communication. So the modeling piece mm-hmm. is, you know, if I'm, if I'm the mom and I'm, there's a, a bunch of people or families around the table and I'm handing out casserole, although like, what is this? This is not the eighties. People don't eat casserole <laughs> in the same way anymore. <laughs> like, this is my childhood. I'm projecting on everybody. I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> People are passing out the in and out burgers or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And you give two scoops to all the boys and the men and one scoop to the women. Like right. kids are picking up on something about messages and food and what you should eat and how that's related to gender scripts or things like what, what kind of things do you say to yourself under your breath about your body when nobody's watching? Mm-hmm. And then the second piece is the direct communication. So what are we actually saying? Mm-hmm. You know, bodies are this, bodies are that. And I want you to know this and this and this about bodies. So in my, in my research with women who, adult women who loved their bodies mm-hmm. and interviewing their moms as well, figuring out what happened kind of intergenerationally, what messages were passed down, what was fascinating. And this has showed up in so much of my research since I published that book that mothers will say, I said this and this and this to my kids. I said, you're beautiful. Bodies are beautiful. Women's bodies are good. Don't let anyone tell you that you're less than because you're a woman. Fill in the blank. Yeah. And the girls, or I should say the adult women, remember what comes to mind first is like all the times they saw their mom picking at their skin as it rolled over the top of their jeans saying like, oh, I'm so fat, I need to go on a diet again. Or, oh, I just need to like, I need to get a change, change this part of my body. Or like, oh, if I, you know, if I had a body as skinny as yours to the preteen, like yeah. I would be so happy with myself. Right. Yeah. So moms are thinking that they're doing this great thing right. in setting their kids up with this healthy narrative. And the kids are like, I'm seeing the inconsistencies. And I'm yeah. actually seeing, I'm not hearing the big messages that we sit down and have a talk about. I'm hearing like the way you live and what comes out of your mouth when you mm-hmm. think no one's watching, which is brings me back to what I was saying about how it's good to work on ourselves as people because mm-hmm. what spills out when we think no one's watching yeah. is going to shape them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So uh, in the space I live and breathe and work with people, mm-hmm. it's an entrepreneurial community. It's all these mm-hmm. people launching new projects, new things all the time. And one of the things yeah. that I've, I've noticed is uh, people that quit startup worlds, it's because they just had some random idea, but the people that, stay with their ideas for a very long time. It's part of their own personal story. Mm. And so I'm curious, like mm-hmm. for you, is this part of, how, how has this been a shaping thing about who you are Yeah, personally? Yeah, totally. I've heard it said that sometimes research is me search, mm. but there is <laughs> like any, any scientist who's claiming objectivity 
um, is either going to get burnt out and disinterested or they're lying. (laughs) So, so my positionality in this all is eating disorder recovery. And on the heels of that, learning that body image was a central predictor in what would happen in terms of eating disorder symptomatology and, and like a decades long struggle with my body and with an eating disorder. And then some sort of unfolding other adjacent mental illness that came from just being sick for so, 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 so long and being so sick. And really when I was looking at like, how do I motivate myself through recovery? Because there was a a long, I was in therapy not long after my parents discovered that I had an eating disorder. I, it didn't really actually land for me until I could get angry and until I could connect with meaning and and until I could um, hear my own voice Mm -hmm. in the whole story again. And for me, a big motivating factor for recovery, like what, what's my why when I'm thinking about doing all of these hard things to claw my way back into health, a big why was I, I want to do everything that I can with my voice to disrupt the harmful systems that make people feel like their body is a problem and that they need to harm themselves in order to accrue social power like that that's a problem and it needs to change. And so for, for me, there was this hope that I could have a voice in the conversation about bodies at some point. And that fueled so much of the hard work I had to do to get myself unstuck. Mm. And then as I was continuing to research, I realized that a fear that I kept having, not only like, okay, I'm really interested in bodies. I'm really interested in having conversations about how we think and feel about our bodies and the stories we tell ourselves and other people. But what if I have a daughter one day who hates her body the way that I did? Like, what what will I do? How will I handle that? And what do I need to do now to set the foundation to make that even less likely? Because there is an individual piece. We know that eating disorders... And body hatred tend to be disorders of emotion dysregulation and disorders of restricted agency. So if I don't have power in my life, if I don't have a voice, how am I going to get power? How am I, how am I going to feel a sense of control? What can I manage that actually society rewards me for? And if I don't know how to be with my feelings okay, but I feel really good when I restrict my food or I feel really good when I'm having a binge or I'm, I can't manage the shame of what I've eaten. So now I'm going to purge. What, what's going on for me emotionally that, you know, that I can take responsibility for? So those are the individual things, but we look at a societal fabric which rewards people for having a disordered relationship with their bodies. Like you yeah. mentioned, a certain type, right? Yeah. The wellness industry yeah, I feel like they're masking it. I feel like it's oh, a yeah. right because I'm sitting here and oh, yeah. everything is wellness, wellness. But I'm like, but I feel like underneath you're really just about a diet or getting people skinny. Oh like, yeah, this is like a like a famous rebrand to yes. call dieting wellness and to yeah. trick you into thinking that it's actually good for you. Like yeah. there's some major, like big level manipulation happening. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I'm yeah. There's gonna be listeners that get upset with me about this, but I this this new marketing trend on Instagram. Yep. 
is to be most vulnerable about all the challenges in your life and then join their subscription to beauty products that they <laughs> that they promote. Have you seen? I mean, it's like, I don't want to say the brand because I know people. It, it is okay. it is the new strategy through social marketing. Today. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, using vulnerability as a hook to say like, I am like you or is that what's mm-hmm. going on? You think? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's great manipulation right there. I mean, we've got one of my favorite authors within my th- theoretical framework of therapy has said that the fastest way to a shared experience is emotional vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That that is the wow. way that we create intimacy because we're we're social creatures. But when the intimacy is phony because you don't actually know each other and there's these are just parasocial relationships, then... Oh man, it's just it's just such an interesting time to think about how we do relationship and how we understand ourselves in a network of people through screens yeah. and how we can feel so connected to people in their work but we don't really even know what's going on for them. Yeah. So that that to me feels like a a problematic strategy because yeah. it's not actual vulnerability, it's performative vulnerability which Perform. could have the same impact on someone who doesn't know different mm-hmm. and is looking at a screen. And could hook us into something because our emotions are part of our decision-making centers and we need them to make decisions. And often, like I was saying earlier, when someone makes a disclosure, like a partner makes a disclosure and says, oh, I'm really struggling. If we're tuned into ourselves, our natural response will be, oh, I'm so sorry. And I feel closer to you and thank you. But that's not meant to be something that happens in terms of selling beauty products that keep women stuck in like a really rigid gender script that actually is oppressive and misogynistic. So, I mean, non comment. But I find it interesting that I have no idea what you're talking about, and I'm realizing it's because I don't follow any any content on social media online that has anything to do with appearance management whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't have a single account, and if somebody starts talking about it, I mute them or block them or delete them. Like I have oh. no interest in in taking in content from people that suggests that even like incepts me with the idea that I need to change my body. One of the hardest things though with that is being a partner to someone that is struggling with that. Yeah. I mean, Mm. it never goes away. I don't think, I don't, I don't think it ever fully goes away. There's things that reemerge in, in unhealthy seasons. Right. Okay. Um, so, and as a partner, you see, I see you differently than you may even view yourself. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so we get stuck in these um, almost traps, I would say, mm. of knowing how, how to be loving, encouraging, also empathetic, and also like motivating. And like, mm-hmm. I think in relationships, sometimes. I'm not thinking of a specific thing this week, by the way. It's not. <laughs> but I, this I, could, week. I, I could see someone <laughs> listening right now going, mm-hmm. I'm relating to everything you're saying, and I still don't know how to connect with my partner in the midst of all this. In the midst of um, like when the partner's struggling with body image issues yeah, absolutely. or. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I think the, I mean, I'm trying to read between the lines too here. Cause I think sometimes maybe the assumption I'm making in your question is that one of the partners 
is concerned about the other person because of that, or they're like trying to say, this is a preoccupation for you, but it's like, I think you're telling a story about yourself that nobody else is telling about you. Is that kind of what you're asking? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, again, I'll go back to my, my comment earlier in our conversation. Do we have a foundation in our marriage where we can talk about the hard things? And can I come to you and say, Hey, I'm worried about you. Could you be open to hearing some feedback that I give you? Um, and without that immediately provoking a defensive response that shuts down the, the important conversation even before it begins. Mm-hmm. And, and so that I think is, is the foundation upon which most of these other nuanced conversations are predicated. But I think that there's something important about saying to a person, I love you. And it's so confusing to me that you think about yourself the way that you do. And I, I'm concerned about it. I'm not only confused, but I'm concerned about it because I can see how much energy it's taking away from you actually being f- more full in your life. It feels like you're trying to find all of these ways to be small. And I actually want more of you in our marriage. I want more of you and your fullness in our connection because it actually makes your life better. It makes my life better. You're like we're together instead of like managing food together. Like, and so I want to support you with that. And, and I want you to know that I don't, if anyone else talked to you the way you talk to yourself, I would tell them they're never allowed to be in our house again, but I feel confused and conflicted because it's you that's talking to you about yourself like that. Mm. And so I want to join with you in strengthening the other parts of your self-talk and slowly see if we can ask that other part that's shaming and self-critical to leave because really it feels like it's part of this family dynamic and there's actually three of us in this marriage or I mean like whatever, whatever elements in there feel like they fit, but saying something from a position of I'm concerned and I'm confused and I want more and this is hurting you. Mm-hmm. And how can I support you? And and let's see if we can get you connected to some resources where you can start freeing yourself from this because you are holding yourself to a standard that nobody else is asking from you yeah. and is actually hurting you. We are asking everybody this question. And the okay. question of this project is, is it possible to change the world, stay in love, and raise a healthy family. What do you think about that question? I'm so sorry for this, but I really feel like I would need to spend a lot of time defining those terms with you yeah. to evaluate that question. Like the academic in me is like, but what's changed the world? And has changed the world like being more loving than you were yesterday? Or has changed the world like I've created a social justice justice movement that is intersectional and led by the stakeholders in the community and transforms, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like eradicates poverty in one generation. Like, I don't yeah. know what that means. Like, yeah. what does it mean to, yeah. right? Like all of those things have so many, yeah. so many different facets to them. But I think. I mean, but the thing I, is women are trying to do it all. Right. And want right. it all. Yeah. Do you think it's possible? Mm. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I feel like I I can only think phenomenologically and I can think of each (laughs) one person sitting in front of me thinking like, I think that there are probably more ways that I think there are ways for that specific person to be involved in their community and in love and connected to themselves and the world around them and justice movements. And then there are other people, I think like the goals are too lofty. And if we scaled the goals back, 
then they yeah. could have some of those other things and we yeah. need to tune the dials a bit on things. But I think like if we had another 45 minutes to operationalize those definitions, <laughs> um, I feel like we could come to some agreement and I think, yeah, in some situations that would be, that that's totally possible, but maybe therapist. we need to scale back some of the goals. I know. Right. This is like the therapist academic combo where I'm like, no. what, what do you mean by that word? Can you yes. cite your sources? Define but like, that. Let me see the individual. You're killing you? me, Helen. <laughs> no, I, know. Yeah. I love the individual. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, I think that is very true. That, and also seasonal, right? I mean, there's yeah. certain moments and seasons in life where it's like you actually just need to be working on you and in therapy and taking care of you, yes. and yes. you can't. You have to heal from trauma. You have to heal from that. Right. You know, there That's is right. not a place where you can also be out there changing the world or doing this thing when you have to mm-hmm. work on this. So I, 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 I see that therapy part of mm-hmm. you. I get it. It makes and I sense. Think the more I learn from my indigenous brothers and sisters about the way that our, our cultural narratives come from a kind of like go into the world and change it and take what you get, the power that you get from feeling important about changing I, I think more and more these days about changing the world being something that happens in my moment to moment relationships and interactions with people where instead of like rushing and being productivity focused, I'm, I'm heart centered. I'm hearing a person instead of trying to take from them or get like create something. And so when I think about changing the world that way, I think about that is impacting every single one of those other factors that you mentioned. Yeah. And instead of these super big, like the grandiose, um, really obvious world changing things, I think about the human to human encounters that really, like I was saying, when we look at the long line of people that came before us and the long line of people that will come after us, our, our responsibility in that. And now it's time for the breakdown. The breakdown. I don't know if Hillary knows this, but she is in our book. Oh, she might not know. I, I think I forgot to tell her. But uh, if you all read our book, you will hear her in it because I quote her and I talk about her book in our book um, because she taught me a lot. She's been teaching me a lot. It's interesting doing a breakdown after this one because I feel like she kind of broke it down on us already. She definitely did some therapy mm-hmm. for sure. And I think just how she continually went back to this foundation that your relationship should be a place where you can talk about hard things. Mm. Like it should be a safe space for that. And she continuously kind of went back to that, went back to that. And I think that's really the root of that, right? That you should be able to feel safe with somebody and have these really hard conversations about how you're feeling postpartum, how you're feeling about your body, how you're, you know, all these things that are happening and changes in your life and your body and yourself. It was really encouraging to listen to her share her story, personal story with her and her husband. Mm that there was a reset that they had. Yeah. I love when she was like, marriage one is over. Yeah. (laughs) Now we're going into marriage two. Wow. What a freeing concept. Hmm. If you're listening and you're, you're in it right now, you're in marriage one and you're like, I need 
we need to reimagine this. I want to encourage you and give you permission to think about that. Think about maybe we need to restart. And especially before you jump to a deeper conclusion, an ending conclusion, to, make, to take a second and to consider what, if, what could this look like differently? If I communicated what I needed and what I want and what I desire with my partner, and if they actually could listen and hear you, hmm. what a powerful concept, a beautiful concept of a restart. And what are those things that you're just kind of going through? I think she alluded to it, like the societal norms or the cultural pressures or what you have always just seen or imagined marriage should be or your partnership should be, but like it isn't and that's not really the reality. And how would you want to reimagine it if you threw all of those things away and you can make it how you wanted it to be with your partner? How could it be? As a man listening, I took away this idea of being more curious and, and showing empathy towards you. And the truth is, life is busy. Where you, most of life, we're trying to just manage schedules and getting stuff done. But if I were to stop and engage you hmm. with a pure like interest continuously our relationship is is going to be more intimate mm, yeah it's going to draw you closer to me mm-hmm. vice versa mm-hmm. and if you need to reset man how curious are you about your partner yeah wow i think we should leave it at that okay. that question is what our listeners should be thinking about yeah, and that's, that was all from, from Hillary, not me. I, I just I want to reiterate what she's saying because I think that is going to bring you together. Yeah, it's I mean, be good. those first date questions, right? What's your favorite color? I'm trying to think about what I asked you <laughs> on my first date with you. Was it before or after I made you turn your t-shirt inside out because you walked in with your Abercrombie and Finch shirt and I was not having it. (laughs) This is a true story. (laughs) I don't remember that was the first date, but we did go on a date one time and you were like, and I was wearing this. I, I remember the shirt. It was a green, olive green, like army color green shirt and just said Abercrombie on it. And you said, I will not go into public with you wearing that shirt. Yes. So I, I had to I turn it inside out. oppose that store. <laughs> so if, no, if you no, were no curious. to anybody who might be wearing one right now. But my husband and my date at that time was not going to be wearing one with me. If anyone happens to have that shirt and you would send it to me, I would pay you a hundred dollars. <laughs> no, you for will that shirt not. because I will walk in. I will walk that shirt on to our next date, and you will love it. No, no, no. You'd be oh like, oh, oh boy, you looking good. Oh my goodness, that Just was kidding. that was when I didn't believe in buying consumeristic things at that time. Remember, I got all my you do clothes believe secondhand. In that now? No, that was in college when yeah. I bought all my secondhand clothes. 
So when you showed up in that shirt, <laughs> I was like, nope, take it off. Turn it inside out. Well, what's so exciting is next week, we're going to be back with you again. We'll be back next Tuesday. Every Tuesday, we have a new episode coming out. And so many things to celebrate. So many things are coming at you with this new content we have. Yeah, the book. The book. So next week, we're going to give you a glimpse into the book. Yeah, I think you're going to get a chapter. You get to listen to us reading a chapter. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about it. We'll tell you a little bit about it. It's going to be good. That's your little bit of what next week will be. Just a little bit of Jeff and Andre. (laughs) That's another episode of Love or Work. We'll see you next week. Produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.